0: All right. Thank you all for coming. We're going to get started. We're in Revelation 18. We're looking at verses 1 to 4. Revelation 18, we read. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you. For your word, we thank you, Lord, that you still speak today, God, and we pray that's what you would do, you'd speak to us tonight, Lord, speak into our hearts by your spirit as we uh, examine these four verses closely, Lord, and I pray that you would give us eyes to see you, Lord, give us minds of understanding, give us hearts to love you more, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. All right, so in this vision cycle that we started last week, we've already seen almost the entire time between Christ's comings from a worldly point of view because most of that time was represented by the prostitute sitting on the beast and on the many waters. And this is the world system. This is false religion carried by secular powers, even as false religion causes people to worship those powers. And we saw at the end of chapter 17 that the prostitute was going to be destroyed by the beast and the kings of the earth, which would signal a change in the world order when the Antichrist is revealed. It will consolidate the powers of the kingdoms of the world, and that will be Satan's last attempt to thwart God's plan and to take the throne for himself. And in the middle of that description of this consolidation of earthly power, we read this. And then we will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And this will be the gathering of all God's enemies by Satan, the fallen angels, worldly powers, the reprobate, against God for one final attempt for Satan to seize power. This was represented by the Battle of Armageddon in the previous cycle. And we saw it repeated over and over again that all this will serve to do is lead to Satan's destruction and the destruction of the powers of darkness. But we also saw in both vision cycles that will be ultimately God's doing. He will bring together his enemies to come against him so they can be destroyed. As we saw a little later, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And here in chapter 18, we see God's sovereign hand in even the fall of the prostitute by the hand of Satan and the Antichrist. Now, note back that, that back in chapter 17, John sees the woman sitting on the beast and on the many waters, and he marvels at her. Remember, we looked at that. It means that he wondered at what he was seeing. And the angel that's mediating the vision tells him what it means, but the angel spoke in the future tense. He said, the beast that was and is not was about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. He said the final king, represented by the seventh head of the beast, the angel said, he has not yet come. The ten horns that represent the ten kings, symbolizing all the worldly power, the angel says of them, they have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority and rule with the beast. We saw that the beast will hate the prostitute, and that he and the kings of the world will make her desolate and destroy her. So. The angel tells him what's about to happen, and then he ends with this at the end of the chapter. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So when chapter 17 ends, John has seen the woman and been told what is about to happen to the woman, who is Babylon, spiritual Babylon. That she's not yet been destroyed. The Antichrist has not yet risen to power. Satan has not yet gathered the kings of the world. But now that happens here in this chapter. We see what the angel described to John as yet to happen. He sees it happen now. Revelation 18.1, he said, After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. So this is now a different angel from the angel that was just speaking to John. That angel was one of the seven that had one of the seven bowls of judgment. So this is a different angel. And like we've seen before in the book of Revelation, this angel represents Christ. We know that because first, this angel has great authority. As we've seen, there's only one who really has any authority. Even as the devil and and the beast are said to have authority in the world, we saw it's really God behind everything they're doing and will do. And even though the reprobate, the unsaved, gives Satan authority over them, and that's what makes him king of this world, as in king of those of the world, the fact of the matter is that Christ really has authority even over them. As he told his disciples after, after his resurrection, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So only Christ has the authority. Second, we see that all the earth was made bright with the glory of this angel. The earth being filled with glory in the Bible always refers to God's glory. Like in Ezekiel's vision of the new temple, where he says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel is coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Or the prayer of Solomon in Psalm 72. Where he says, of God, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Or when Isaiah prophesies of the final salvation of God's people at his second coming, where he says, more technical difficulties. There we go. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Okay, they switched good. Or, as Christ promised, would happen at his second coming, he said, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of a Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And it will say that his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. As we've seen throughout, we know the darkening of the heavenly bodies pictures the second coming and then Jesus says here in heaven will appear the sign of the son of the man. It says the indication of the son of man. It's the indication that Christ is coming back because when it becomes obvious that Christ is coming, all the earth will mourn. Some of the unsaved, all the earth will mourn because the whole earth will see him coming in glory. His glory will be over all the earth. So here, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. We see here what Christ was talking about. This is Christ coming from heaven. And now he speaks. Verse 2. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. No, it says he calls with a mighty voice. It's another indication, Mrs. Christ, because this is used of Yahweh in the Old Testament, like in Psalm 68, where David says, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. And this, of course, here in Psalm 68 is a picture of the consummation of all things. Jeremiah the prophet picks up on this symbolism a little bit when he predicts the destruction of physical Babylon, which, as we've seen, points to the destruction of spiritual Babylon, when he says this, A voice, a cry from Babylon, the noise of great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans, for the Lord is laying Babylon waste, and stilling her mighty voice. Their waves roar like many waters. We see here the, the, the same language being used. The noise of their voice is raised. for a destroyer has come upon her upon Babylon, her warriors are taken, their bows are broken in pieces. for the Lord is a God of recompense, He will surely repay. So note here, Isaiah is predicting a time when the mighty voice of the world is silenced by God at the second coming. And that's what's happening here. And we saw the prophecy of Isaiah last week. was we, we, reference in chapter 17, Isaiah 21 where we said that we see the same language being used. Isaiah 21, 9, he says, And behold, here come riders, horsemen, and pairs." And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of our gods he has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. So what John is seeing here is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And we've already seen this. Two vision cycles ago, we saw the three angels that pronounced judgment right before the harvest of the earth. And one of those angels said, Revelation 14, 8, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Which we saw in the last chapter refers to the prostitute, where we read, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And that is the same thing that is repeated here when we read, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So remembering that Babylon is the world over against the church, It says here, she's the dwelling place for demons and every unclean spirit. And this points us again to the reality of a spiritual war we are in as God's people. See, the Bible assumes the reality of the spiritual realm. It assumes the reality of demons and angels. It assumes the existence and fall of Satan, of all the spiritual reality behind everything that happens here in the physical world. By the time the book of Revelation was written, all of those same things were assumed by Christians. But over time as we become more enlightened uh, and we place ourselves on the throne, belief in the spiritual realm that the Bible assumes isn't assumed anymore. In fact, it's mostly denied. It's been replaced by unbelief and maybe some New Age kind of spiritualism, but Satan's just fine with that. You know, all this just makes his job that much easier. And this is exactly why we don't hear of demon possessions like we read about in the Bible, because Satan and the demons, they're not about to prove their existence to a world that doesn't think they exist. But the reality is, they do. The spiritual powers of darkness are very real, and they are in control of the kingdom of the world and of the reprobate. Remember, as we've seen, when God scattered the nations at Babel, we're going back a little bit, he placed heavenly beings over every nation. We read about it in Deuteronomy 32. This is when the Most High, that's God, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, talking about Babel, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. We'll get back to that in a minute, but as we saw last week, we don't know how or when, but a lot of angels followed Satan in his rebellion against God. The Bible's silent on when and how that happened. But we do know that those with power over the nations are among those fallen angels. We see this in the book of Daniel. For instance, when we read of the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, the angels that were over those particular kingdoms. But the fact of the matter is that demons, actual powers of darkness, are all over the world. As I said, There doesn't need to be one physical world government represented in the book of Revelation. There's already one spiritual world government ruled by Satan and his demons. And that's what we see here in Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And the demons and unclean spirits here are the spiritual powers of darkness that rule over the world system and the reprobate. And because the world is led astray through the deceit of these powers, the world is unclean. The reference of the unclean birds and unclean beasts, these are a callback to the dietary laws that God gave to Israel, where we read things, we read them in passing and don't really pay much attention to them, right? Like in Deuteronomy 14, where we read, These are the animals you may eat the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. And a little later, about the birds, we read, You may eat all clean birds. But these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl. I wouldn't know any of these if I saw them myself, i got to be honest. The carrion vulture, the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. Okay, eating anything that God did not allow made someone unclean before God. And this symbolism of unclean animals that we see here in Revelation... Is used throughout the Old Testament prophets all over the place. Like in Jeremiah, where he prophesies judgment on physical Babylon, and he says, Therefore, wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon, and ostriches shall dwell with are unclean animals. She shall never again have people nor be inhabited for all generations. Well, this is what Christ is calling to mind, the destruction of Babylon, when he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. He's speaking of the sinfulness of the world in control of these demons, the world system under the control of Satan. Spiritual Babylon represents all of these things. And anyone associated with the world system is unclean and under God's judgment. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. All nations, all earthly powers, all people who live of the world and seek earthly riches and and earthly comfort, seek these things as ultimate instead of God as ultimate, will be judged. But in contrast to them, we have this in verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So there's a voice from heaven, which is God's voice. And he calls those who are to come out of Babylon, my people, so we know it's God. But there's a lot going on in this one verse here. Because there's actually three different references here. First, this is using language from the physical Babylonian captivity of Judah. Now understand that when Judah was sent into Babylon, away from God's presence, that was the end of the covenant between them and God. It was the end of their status as God's special physical people. That was the end of the One Nation program. Now, God did restore a physical people to the land, but his presence was never there again until the coming of Christ. The ark was not in the temple. As we saw in Revelation 12, the purpose of keeping the remnant of the physical people was to bring forth the true Israel, Jesus Christ, which was God's presence on earth again. And in Christ, the church, which includes the elect of all time, we are the true Israel. We are the spiritual. Israel. So Israel itself and the return of the remnant from captivity, they are pointers to God's true spiritual people. So when God called his people to return to him, and he ended the captivity as he promised he would, all of those promises pertain to the true spiritual people, not the physical people. And what we see here is a call back to the calling of his people out from physical Babylon. When God pronounces judgment on Babylon, he calls his people out of her. In Jeremiah 51, starting in verse 41. We read, How Babylon is taken, the praise of the whole earth seized. How Babylon has become a horror among the nations. The sea has come up on Babylon. She is covered with its tumultuous waves. Her cities have become a horror, a land of drought and a desert, a land in which no one dwells and through which no son of man passes. And I will punish Bel in Babylon, that's one of the Babylonian gods, and take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nations shall no longer flow to him. The well of Babylon is fallen. Go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. We see that same language there. See the same thing in Zechariah 2. Zechariah 2, beginning in verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus is the Lord of hosts. After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know what the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. And the Lord will in- inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem." And we see here the judgment of Babylon means the salvation of God's people, like in Isaiah 48, where he says, Go out from Babylon, free from chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And we see the ends of the earth always included here. We see that this includes much more than just physical national Israel. So once again, physical Babylon points forward to spiritual Babylon. Because before spiritual Babylon is judged, God will call his people out. This also refers to, number two, the resurrection and the rapture of the saints. This is God calling his church to him physically. We've seen the resurrection and rapture actually four times already in the book of Revelation before this. This is just another reference to it. And the plagues, of course, refer to God's judgment. Because as we've seen, the plagues that God used to judge Egypt have been used as pictures of the final judgment throughout the book of Revelation. And that's what is being pictured here again. This is our final salvation and the final judgment of the wicked. So, altogether, we see the calling of God's people out of Babylon in the Old Testament points forward to him calling them out of Babylon at the resurrection and the rapture. But like so many recurring themes in the Bible, there are more than just that initial fulfillment and a final fulfillment. There are fulfillments between the initial and final fulfillment. In fact, the return from Babylon is really an intermediate fulfillment of earlier themes in the Bible. I'm going to say this: it is a fulfillment of the theme of the Bible. Okay, let's back all the way up. We're going to go very big picture here for a minute. We're going to go down a little rabbit trail, but trust me, it's worth it. When God created everything in Genesis one, He completed His creation with man. We are the crowning achievement, and actually, woman is, in my opinion, but. Man was given a mandate. We read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, and this is the mandate, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As we've seen, Eden was the place where God dwelt with man. The idea of the creation mandate is that Adam and Eve, who were created perfect, would fill the earth with perfect progeny and would rule over it. In essence, they were to expand the garden, the place of God's dwelling over all the earth. And as I've said before, God, man, and angels were all to live together in this ever-expanding paradise. But then Satan turned on God, and he convinced man to turn on God, and both Satan and man were evicted from God's presence. Then sin perpetuates itself. The earth becomes so corrupt that God destroys man, except for his chosen few on the ark, and he starts over again, and he gives them the same mandate that he gave to Adam. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps in the ground and and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So once again, we see the mandate is to fill the earth, and rule over it. And Noah, who we're told, walked with God, means he was a believer, he and his family were to fill the earth with people who walked with God. They were to fill the earth with believers, even though now they weren't perfect, right? That, that ended at the garden. Now man was a sinner. He was called to turn from his sin into God. But that didn't last long. And sin perpetuated again. And instead of man filling the earth with believers, they go in the exact opposite direction. All the unbelievers come together to one place at Babel, which becomes Babylon, and not by coincidence. They come together in one place, exalt themselves, and so what happens? God does himself what he told man to do. God filled the earth. He sent them all away from him, all out of his presence. They were evicted from his presence. And we saw when he did this, he put angels over the nations. God disinherited man, gave them over to angels. God was done with them. So in Babel, we see the pattern again of Eden repeated on a global scale. So now, of course, God's plan is totally thwarted, right? Satan and the powers of darkness and wicked man have won, obviously. Well, no. All this happened according to God's plan. Because we've said man cannot do what God commands him to do on his own. So God's plan was always to do it himself. So now... Instead of calling for man to fill the earth with believers, God instead, after scattering men all the way from him, chooses one man to be his. One man out of all men. He chooses Abraham. And he makes him all these great promises without ever giving him any kind of rules to follow. It's all one-sided. He promises Abraham offspring, both physical and spiritual. He promises him a physical offspring that will inherit a physical land and a spiritual offspring that will be of all the families of the earth that receive God's blessing. And we see in Abraham leaving his nation, Abraham leaves his nation that was disinherited by God, that was under demonic rule. We see Abraham coming out of the wicked world kingdom into the presence of God. All right? And Abraham believed God. He had faith in the God who called him out of the world. In his believing God that he would give him an heir from his own body when it was physically impossible Abraham had faith and we're told God counted it as righteousness in his willingness to offer up Isaac believing that God could bring even the dead to life Abraham showed faith so now instead of calling all the world to believe God calls one man to believe and the promise he gives to Abraham is passed on to who? right but not all his children one Right, not all his children, only the one that God chose, only the offspring of Abraham that God chose. Isaac and not Ishmael. Jacob and not Esau. See, God is showing from the very beginning that His true people are those He chooses. It is not physical descent. It's not the whole world. That was never going to be the case. And then from Jacob comes the nation of Israel, who God chooses at His own out of all the nations of the world. Again, back to Deuteronomy thirty-two. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, again, this is talking about Babel, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. And in contrast to the disinheritance of the nations at Babel, God now calls one particular people to one particular pra- place where He promises His presence will dwell with them if they are obedient. And He chooses Jerusalem as the place for His name to dwell. It's all going to come together, I promise. And because the covenant with Israel was conditional on obedience, just like the covenant he made with Adam, God gives the law. And Israel was now supposed to be different from all the other disinherited nations that were under demonic control. They had their God, right? And that's why they had all those food restrictions, and they were told not to get tattoos, and were told what to wear, how not to cut their hair. All of these physical differences were supposed to separate them physically from the rest of a disinherited world. So God's people were all in one place, and they were to be different from all the nations around them, from the whole world. But man can't do it on his own. And as we know, Israel failed miserably, right? Even though God was patient for centuries with them. And the biggest failure, if you read through the Old Testament and read the indictment from the prophets, the problem was that they rejected God as their God. And they went after the gods of the nations, the sons of God that Yahweh put over the scattered nations. See, Israel was supposed to be different because of the god they worshipped. Israel was supposed to be different from those around them who worshipped false gods, but they were not. And we see this happens in the northern kingdom, which takes the name of Israel. They became idolaters right off the bat. We're told that God rejects them and chooses Judah as his people. And Israel goes into captivity in Assyria. Once again... They are evicted from God's presence, like Adam in the garden, like the children of man were told at Babel, literally it says the children of Adam, they were thrown out of his presence. A couple hundred years later, same thing happens to Judah. They're evicted from God's presence, and they're sent to Babylon. We see this pattern here, right, of God throwing people out of his presence. So now Israel's gone, Judah's gone, God's plan is totally ended, Satan and the powers of darkness, and wicked man won, Right? This is according to God's eternal plan. Israel failed. God chooses Judah and they fail. So what does he finally do? Think about this. What does God do when the physical people he chose failed? He sends them back to Babel. Okay, he called them out of the nations he scattered at Babel, but they reject him, so he rejects them and sends them back to where he disinherited mankind. God at that point disinherited the physical people of Israel and Judah but he still called a spiritual people out of Babylon. Like, out of all those who were disinherited at Babel, and God called Abraham, right? The physical offspring were disinherited in Babylon, and God called his spiritual offspring. We see that pattern continued now spiritually. And like with Abraham, the man of faith, God required nothing of the spiritual people, but made promises to them. He promises Christ. Promises a Savior, the Branch of David, the Shepherd, the Suffering Servant, the Messiah, through whom all of his promises would be fulfilled. And where does God then appear to his people? Well, in the physical location God called his physical people too. Christ appeared in Israel. And he ends up in Jerusalem, where his life is put to an end by the crucifixion. And that's when God's plan is totally thwarted, right? Satan won there. Wrong. Instead... Christ is vindicated. God actually raises the dead to life. Jesus is proven to be the promised Savior. Man couldn't do it on his own, so God did it. And Christ, as we saw in Revelation 12, was to ascend on high to his throne to rule over creation. Remember, man was told to rule over creation, but man can't do it on his own. So God did it. And Christ, right now, rules over all. And one day, physically, he will be the one to subdue the earth and rule over it. But he does something in the meantime, and this is really the important part. Stay with me here. Jesus calls those he chose, his apostles, and he gathers them together before his ascension. Where? In Jerusalem. Read the post-resurrection appearances in the Gospels. Jesus first sends them back to Galilee. Did you ever notice that? That first, he dies in Jerusalem, they're there in Jerusalem. He sends them out of Jerusalem to Galilee. The women come to the tomb, Jesus says to them in Matthew 28, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And that's where he gives them the Great Commission. That's where all of the appearances of Christ in the Gospel of John happen. But at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we read of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We know the story. They meet Christ. Christ disappears. We read this. And they rose up at same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. So now they're all back in Jerusalem. This is after the Great Commission, after those appearances in John's Gospel. And Jesus appears to them here, and he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Think about that. Does it, where is that in the Old Testament? Where does it say that in the Old Testament? It doesn't. He's saying the whole of the Old Testament points to this, right? that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You were witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city, in Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. So notice, the Old Testament scriptures point to Christ and his work, to his death and his resurrection, and it's not just that. They also point to the fact that Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to, very important here, all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then Jesus promises the Holy Spirit and says, stay in Jerusalem. Now remember, Eden was the first place of God's presence on earth. Jerusalem was the last place. It's where God removed his presence from a temple that we see in the book of Ezekiel. Put a pin in that for a minute. Because after these instructions of Jesus, read this. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is the ascension, right? So it was represented in Revelation twelve also. But there's a little more to the story, and Luke fills in the blanks in the beginning of the Book of Acts. I promise, we're getting there. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That's the ascension. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them, the resurrection after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is basically a retelling of what we just saw at the end of Luke, right? But then Luke tells us, this is what transpired at Bethany before Jesus ascended. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. and You will be by witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice where this begins. It's very important. In Jerusalem. And from there, they are to go through all of Judea, who would that be? That would be the returning physical remnant from the Babylonian captivity. Then they are to go to Samaria. That would be made up of the remnant of Israel from their captivity to Assyria. And then from there, they would go into all the world. What Jesus is telling them to do, what he's telling the church to do, is to reclaim the nations that he disinherited, starting from the very place his presence left, starting with the last nation rejected, Judah, then with the second last nation rejected, Israel, then to all the other nations that they were not supposed to be like. This is, this is God's plan to fill the earth and rule over it. And now that God has done the work, now his people can multiply and fill the earth spiritually, fill the earth with people that walk with God, with people made perfect, and even God does that. Because while his people are in Jerusalem, Where God's presence left this world, God sends his presence back. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at, a sound, at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. God sends his presence back to Jerusalem, the last place it dwelt among his people. And the curse of Babel is reversed. Instead of confounding the languages of the physical people, God unites the languages of spiritual people. And God himself, because he does the work, here begins the mission by actually preaching the gospel to every nation under heaven. And the church, now the place of God's dwelling, now empowered by God, who always does the work himself, we are to continue the mission of reclaiming the nations. This is the overarching theme of the Bible. Everything in the Bible is about this. I'm not, that's not hyperbole. Everything in the Bible is about this. Read your Bible without understanding, you're going to start to see things you've never seen before, I promise. Now, why am I including this? Why do we go down this half an hour long rabbit trail studying Revelation 18? Because of what this is saying here. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, Let you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues." Okay, so why was all of this so important to understanding this verse? Well, first we have to understand who God's people are here. Okay, These, this is the spiritual people of God. In other words, the overarching theme of the Bible, which I invite you, look at this for yourself, don't take my word for it. Look at it and see that it's there. But the big picture of God's salvation completely excludes a separate future plan for physical Israel. If God is not done with the physical people, nothing I just said makes any sense. He sent them away from his presence until he returned in the person of Jesus Christ. The temple was never his dwelling place again. Jesus was the true temple. And when Christ finished his work, he ascended, and God returned his presence to the true temple in Jerusalem, which is the church. And that leads us to the second point to be made. All of the physical callings of the Bible, to Adam and Eve, Noah, his family, to make physical offspring, to physically fill the earth, the physical people of Israel, the physical exodus, the physical Babylonian captivity, the physical call for the remnant to come out. These are all pointers to the ultimate spiritual truth, and they are calls to us, us who live on this side of the cross. Because Christ is the spiritual temple. He is the true Israel. He is the fulfillment of every physical promise to Abraham, Israel, and David. And in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we are now the temple where he dwells. He filled the spiritual temple in Jerusalem just like he filled the physical one. And now we are a true Israel of God, his chosen spiritual people. We have been spiritually freed from bondage like they were physically freed at the Exodus. We received a spiritual call to come out of spiritual Babylon like they got the call to come out of physical Babylon. But for us, coming out of a spiritual Babylon means not sharing a sins to the world. And this is a reference back to the call of the spiritual people out of physical Babylon, which points forward to the call of the spiritual people to physically come out of a spiritual Babylon at the rapture. I'm going to say that again. This is a call back to the call of the spiritual people of God out of physical Babylon after the exile. But that points forward to the call of the spiritual people to physically come out of spiritual Babylon at the rapture. But in between those two events, we are called as God's spiritual people to spiritually come out of Babylon. Because we are, spiritually speaking, we are in the exile right now. The exile points to our time here on earth. We are physically in exile. We we don't live on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. That means we are not to live like the world and share its sins. That's what all those physical differences that God called physical Israel mean. That points to the spiritual difference between us and the rest of the world that is still under the power of spiritual darkness here in Babylon. And note, read the Old Testament. Israel and Judah did not lose the land. They did not. Break the covenant, they did not get expelled from God's presence because they ate pork, or because they cut their hair wrong, or because they wore blended clothing. It wasn't because they engaged in physical sexual immorality. That's rampant in the Old Testament. Go read it. It's because they were, as the Bible says, spiritual whores. They committed spiritual sexual immorality by worshiping false gods. In other words, The physical people of God were excluded from God's presence for entirely spiritual reasons. And this is what we, as the true people of God, are called not to do. Just like Isaiah said of the exiles, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. He said that to the physical remnant, Paul says it to the spiritual remnant. He says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are a temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing." He's quoting Isaiah here. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So God in the here and now calls us spiritually out of Babylon where we physically dwell. And this is how we multiply and subdue the world. We fill it with spiritual children of Abraham, which Paul says is the church. And as we've seen, there is an already and not yet element to everything we read about in the time between Christ's two comings, right? Christ inaugurated the end times when he came. They won't be complete until he comes back. Christ already defeated Satan, but Satan is not destroyed until Christ comes back. We are already saved. Our eternity has begun. We have not yet received our full salvation. And all of these not yets will be fulfilled by Christ at his second coming. So though we are already saved and called out of spiritual Babylon, we are not yet physically separated from Babylon. Just like Ezekiel and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are exiles in Babylon, but called not to live of Babylon. Because our true home is heaven, where is the physical presence of Christ right now? Like those in Babylon were physically away from God's presence, so are we in the world until Christ comes again and we are resurrected or raptured. All that to say, Revelation 18 is our reality right now. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, and she is. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast, every sort of sin. For all nations, all of them, have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of a luxurious living. But to us he says, Come out of her, my people, let you take part in her sins, let you share in her plagues. See, our reality as the church is that we were always God's plan to multiply and fill the earth and rule over it. And we are here to call back the disinherited nations to God. But the powers of darkness thinks this world belongs to them. And while one day Eden will be spread over the whole earth and perfect man will dwell with angels and our God physically in accordance with God's eternal plan, for now we are exiles in enemy territory and we are called to persevere by not taking part in our sins lest we share in her punishment. This is our spiritual reality. And I think far too many Christians don't accept this as reality. We need to.